0: Lord, as we have just sung this morning, we we recount your great deeds in sending your Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who took on flesh in the incarnation, who became a man, who entered into the womb of the Virgin Mary, who came by way of birth canal into the experience of mankind to suffer, Lord, under the conditions of a post-fall world and did so absolutely sinlessly satisfying the terms of the covenant, living a perfectly righteous life. By His righteousness, we are justified upon that imputation of the same when we are saved. It is because of our Lord Jesus Christ and His shed blood that our sins are atoned for. He took upon Him the punishment that we deserved. And for these things, we give you praise, we give you thanks. As we turn now to your holy word, and as we see, Lord, the emphasis and the priority that is placed upon this message of truth for all mankind, I pray that you would stir our hearts, Lord, to understand and appreciate, that our minds would have more clear thoughts and more consistently applied thinking according to the great gospel of truth, and that our souls would be stirred to praise, that we would be quickened in our affections to appreciate the holiness of our great God and the power of His manifold works through all redemptive history culminating in the work of Christ on Calvary. I pray that the message to the churches as we read in Galatians and as we find in the rest of the Scriptures, Lord, would resonate with us, that we, your church, would hear and heed your holy word, that we might glorify you more, that we might have solid footing underneath us, that we might be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord. And for us as individuals, Lord, I pray that you would use your word to convict us of sin, and to cause us, Lord, to repent and to reject that of the flesh which still might cling to us, and that the washing of the water of the Word would be effective this morning to render us, Lord Jesus, holy, and our sanctification would continue as we hear Your Word proclaimed. And for the lost within the hearing of this message, we pray that the authoritative proclamation of the Word of Jesus Christ would cause them to repent of their sin. May deep conviction fall upon those, Lord Jesus, who are hardened in their sinfulness, and that You would draw them unto the cross of Calvary, cause them to throw themselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ, their only Lord and Savior, that they might repent and believe that He alone can accomplish the work that is necessary to reconcile them before the Father. And gather us finally, Lord, at Your table at the close of this message, that we might appreciate Your Son's shed blood and broken body on our behalf. In all of this, we pray that You would be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. What a gracious gift we have today to celebrate our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to open up His Holy Word. Will you turn with me this morning to Galatians chapter 5? Galatians 5, 13 through 26, the second half of the chapter, will be the focus of this sermon this morning under the title, Flesh Contra Spirit. You could say flesh versus spirit. The word contra means opposed to the flesh is opposed to the Spirit. This is an abiding theme in the second half of Galatians 5. This morning's message will be an overview. This is a famous section of Scripture. It includes, among other things, the gifts of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit, I should say, and which we're all, if you've been in Christ for very long and around evangelical circles and biblical preaching, I'm sure you've heard many times expositions, sermons around, or applications drawn according to the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes messages along these lines take some time with each one or expand them in detail. We won't do that this morning. This morning will be primarily an overview and the context of the second portion of Galatians 5. Perhaps at a later date, we will expand a little more deeply and specifically on some of the items that Paul covers in this text. The aim of this morning's message is to highlight the power of the work of Christ through the indwelling Spirit. Again, Paul highlights the power of the work of Christ in the life of a believer through the indwelling Spirit. You might ask this question, what difference does Pentecost make? That's a question we'll tackle in the course of this message. What difference does the promise that Jesus Himself said in John 16, which we'll touch upon later, that He would send another, a comforter, a paraclete, a helper, that is, God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to attend our way, indeed to indwell His saints. What difference does that make? Galatians 5 answers many in manifold ways that question. So this morning, with your Bible open, or as you uh, draw your eyes to the screen here, would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word? Let us stand out of reverence for God's Holy Word as we hear in our ears today, Galatians 5, 13 through 26, proclaimed, Here is the word of the Lord. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say... idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Let let me uh, remind you of the context of Galatians, the overriding occasion. False teachers have invaded the territory, if you will, with teaching that was corrupting the pure and undefiled gospel in the minds of the hearers. This corruption came by way of this message that in order to be saved, it is not by grace through faith in the work of Christ alone, but it is by grace, sure, But not a grace that is is sufficient, but a grace that needed to be augmented, or a grace that needed our works alongside at least the work of circumcision. And so these teachers were interested in probably doing several things. One was currying favor with with the Jewish contingency in the Galatian region. In other words, in some sense, they were advocating that Christians had to become Jews. This would make the Jews happy. In another way, they're probably interested in setting apart their specific teaching to give them influence with the church at this time. Something different sets you apart, it gives you a distinction, allows you to uh, you know, weigh your teaching against others. And if in the minds of the undiscerning, if you are very charismatic, if you have gifts of persuasion, if you collect some followers around you, if it's a popular teaching anyway, if it tickles the ears of the flesh-driven hearts of the average sinful individual not walking in the Spirit, you can gain a great following. And the church of Jesus Christ, in short order, can be overrun by this kind of negative influence. Hence the anger uh, that Paul demonstrates, a righteous indignation against such influences in the church. And we better be thankful that Paul reacted in such a way as to stamp out thoroughly and completely this heresy. Why? Because the false teaching like this had been allowed to fester and overrun the confession of the Church of Jesus Christ, generations to come could be corrupted and fall into, and fall away in, by increasing measure from the tried and true once for all faith delivered to the saints that passes the test of the Bible properly proclaimed and understood. We can thank the apostle Paul and others who laid down their life, who risked their life for the defense of the true gospel. That in their lineage of gospel proclamation and even writing down the scriptures to these churches at that time, we now have the benefit of understanding not only what the true gospel is, but how valuable it is, and how diligently we must, or how diligent we must be, to protect it. So that's our background. Having thoroughly condemned the theological error which, anima, which animated the Judaizers then, namely the imposition of the law. The requirements that the false teachers were saying that certain portions of the law at least must be fulfilled by us as a prerequisite for salvation like circumcision, in a word legalism, so Paul had addressed the theological error of legalism thoroughly, now he turns his attention to another prevalent error, that of, in a word we could say perhaps, licentiousness. At the root of licentiousness is this idea of license, license. Does the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ give you license to act on your fleshly desires, that is, those things that accord with your sinfulness, with your nature apart from regeneration, with your birth in Adam? The answer is clearly and unequivocally no. But it's an error that is also one that needs contending against. Licentiousness is acting lawlessly with antinomian, that is, anti-law, disregard for holiness as if your status grants you license or permission to pursue your worst desires. Galatians 5.1 provides a helpful conceptual theme to organize Paul's thoughts in this regard. He has said, Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Again, for freedom... Christ says, set us free, stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The second portion of chapter 5 warns of other yokes of slavery. The first yoke, legalism. The second yoke, licentiousness. While men aren't, are uh, easily ensnared by arbitrary standards of piety, or holiness, righteousness, and pursue, pursue works as a means of atonement, Paul addresses a yoke of a different type here, the works of the flesh. In so doing, Paul extends a larger spiritual theme of his epistle to the Galatians. That theme is one of pointed contrast. Paul has drawn, as commentators draw our attention to, and you can notice this through the whole of the text, the whole of Galatians, that Paul has drawn these distinctions at least, the difference not only of the spirit and the flesh, which is the theme of our message today. But this joins the list that he has compiled to this point, including true gospel versus false gospel, faith versus works, law versus grace, liberty versus legalism, sonship versus slavery. And again, now we have the distinction spirit versus flesh. These are all related. They're all important. And Paul is laboring to emphasize the difference between the two. And the book of Galatians is an indispensable tool of discernment so that we recognize when the church falls into errors of apostasy or that could tend toward apostasy, that is, falling away from one's once-professed faith. Just a note, take, uh, uh, take this to heart. When we read of the errors that the Galatian church fell, fell into, you might think to yourself, well, I can't really imagine myself being moved to consider circumcision as necessary for salvation. You might get from that the false impression that you have a higher immunity, independent of the Word of God and the means that the Holy Spirit supplies, of resisting false teaching. That was a deception, however, that sounded very convincing under the cultural conditions and the influences of the time. In other words, the devil is not stupid. These days... He will not probably try to convince you that circumcision is necessary for you to be saved. But mark my words, there is something more convincing to us that He will try to use. And so today, as it was then, it is an absolute requirement, a necessity, prerequisite for us to stand firm in the faith, to be thoroughly saturated with the Word of God, to understand it through and through, to constantly be double-checking our inclinations, And our persuasions, our ideas, our conclusions, uh, the things that we uh, prefer to think about, the things that we're attracted to by way of ideas, philosophies, etc., etc., these things need to be held accountable to the Word of God. Otherwise, we, like the Galatians, could easily be led astray. Paul reveals, here's a heading for you in the second portion of Galatians 5, he reveals the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer by emphasizing the following. Here's four categories. Number one, the spirit of the law. Paul covers the essence or the spirit or the intent of the law of God in verses 13 through 15. He continues to expound the role of the spirit in the life of the believer by emphasizing, number two, the antithesis, a sharp contrast, if you will, between the spirit and the flesh, verses 16 through 18 title of our message. Number three, the role of the Spirit is revealed by His emphasis on the works of the flesh, verses 19 through 21. This is anti-Spirit activity or evidence, if you will. And then number four, the fruit of the Spirit, verses 22 through 26. So we see flesh contra Spirit. Spirit versus the flesh is the overriding theme And we see the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer as Paul expounds these ideas. Let's begin with the Spirit of the law. Turning our attention to our text again, note verses 13 through 15, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul is speaking to the intent of God's law in this passage. The term law can be tricky in Scripture. You need to pay close attention to the context to understand what he is getting at. In this sense, God, uh, uh, Paul is using the term law as a reference to God's terms of righteousness, God's revelation of holiness, God's will and intent, His purposes for men, the direction that He has called us to walk. Now, this is in sharp contrast to the idea of law that the Judaizers or the false teachers were teaching. Calvin sums it up this way. Paul identifies, and then, quote, love to men as the fulfilling of the law in opposition to the false teachers who made fulfilling of the law to lie in observance of the ceremonies of the law again paul identifies love to men as the fulfilling of the law in opposition to the false teachers who made fulfilling of the law to lie in observance of the ceremonies of the law so you see the difference here now when we read fulfilling in this context it means obedience You could substitute, perhaps, obedience to the law as a term fulfilling. This isn't fulfilling in the sense that Christ was the prophetic fulfillment of what the law anticipated and prefigured, but this is satisfying or walking in the precepts or obeying the law. Now, there's two visions that were competing in Galatia for obedience to the law, that is to say, and on the one hand, obedience to God's precepts required according to the false teachers, observance of the ceremonies of the law. You must become a Jew before you become a Christian. You must, uh, you must practice uh, the ceremonial rite of circumcision in order to be acceptable before the Lord in order to be saved. Paul corrects this by giving the spirit of the law, by giving the true intent of the law, by saying, no, that the sum of the law can be this word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, the love of neighbor, if you will. Now, by way of overview, Paul has now hit the nail on the head of two perennial errors, two recurring errors in the confessing church across all ages. Two main categories that entice the church into apostasy, and we've already stated them as legalism, and licentiousness. Notice that Paul has aimed his guns of correct gospel truth at these two potential pitfalls. First of all, legalism, which he has covered in the course of his instruction up to this point. And secondly, licentiousness, which you will get into here. People assuming that because of their status, they have permission to practice The works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality, idolatry, and sorcery, and so on. Now, this is no accident. This is by the sovereign hand of God. This is forensic evidence of the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. Why do I say this? Well, you need only look at most cults to understand the significance of Paul's directives in this regard. If you looked on the surface of most cults, you will see that there is a sort of straight-laced exterior oftentimes. Strict legalistic codes. There's many examples come to mind, but uh, I always think of the Jehovah's Witnesses because they'll come and they'll knock on your door. Uh, we often, I, I've often heard that people, I've often heard people say, "Man, if we were just as dedicated to evangelism as the Jehovah's Witnesses were, this world might be won over to Christ two times over already." Well, what is the purpose for this incessant call? Uh, this incessant. You know, knocking on door after door after door when it comes to Jehovah's Witnesses, it's because of legalism. It, they teach that this act of faithfulness to their religion is necessary for them to have any hope for salvation. And so they dress nicely and they talk kindly, and they go over and over again, in spite of the rejection they may get, door after door after door, putting on this straight-laced surface exterior but behind the scenes often we'll see something different. I've listened to several testimonies of those who have come out of legalistic cults like this. And invariably what you find in their testimony is behind the straight lace exterior, when you see behind the scenes, there's often licentiousness, scandal, sin that is not dealt with. This should not be a surprise to us. Why? Because legalism has no power against the works of the flesh. The only power... Against the works of the flesh, and Paul says it right in our text today, is the indwelling spirit of God. God is not mocked. If you substitute true faith, the true indwelling, the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, you must be born again. If you preach, it's not necessary that you be born again, that you be transformed from the inside. No, you can make yourself clean by external works. You'll become like a Pharisee, whitewashed tomb on the outside, dead man's bones on the inside. Coats of brilliant paint on the exterior, but a rotting, termite-infested core. And this is the testimony of many, if not all, cults, uh, uh, especially of the righteousness, you know, uh, external or superficial righteousness variety. Thus, Paul's words speak directly to errors of this sort. Though uh, many expressions of religion may appear, a straight-laced, have a certain righteousness on the surface or an impressive exterior. Often they are ridden with sins of licentiousness and scandal behind the scenes. Also, other errors come to mind. Fundamentalist movements of the last century sought to build a bulwark against the liberalizing of the church, and that was happening in many of the mainstream or mainline denominations. But if they would add to the requirements of the law things that God did not prescribe, They would be like the Pharisees, stepping into the same error that the Pharisees did, presuming themselves an ethical authority by adding to the list of do's and don'ts things that God did not prescribe. And again, this is in competition with the authority, with the preeminence, with the sovereignty of God if we take the terms of righteousness into our own hands and thus it will lead to a rotting out of the essence of our faith. Also, there's an emphasis That is encroaching, infecting the church these days of, think of the affirming language of sexual self-identity. More and more in major denominations in our day, we see capitulation, compromise, or redefinition of terms in this regard, making way for sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and so forth in the language and in the attitude of these uh, uh, confessing churches. Uh, there was an email that one of my buddies in the ministry, actually, Pastor Joe, he'll be preaching next week for you, and he was recently at a uh, meeting of his denomination, and there had been two churches that had uh, recently um, had, uh, or within the last five years, had homosexuals who were given pro- places of prominence leadership in these churches. It took an entire five years to actually work some church discipline and say that, no, you've disqualified yourself as a church in good standing with our denomination. And he said that was an entirely, in his view, is an entirely unreasonable amount of time for something that is so clearly unbiblical and should have been dealt with very quickly. But he said, by other measures, we've compromised, and that's why we are weak in standing against these matters of the flesh that are now being codified by church policy in many of these denominations Joe described it this way. It's like standing on a banana peel trying to stop a bulldozer. Like standing on a banana peel trying to stop a bulldozer. It's descriptive language. If you do not have the Holy Spirit and you want to stand against the works of the flesh, if you want to stand for Christ, if you want to retain the truth of the gospel, aside from the foundation of the Holy Spirit, your efforts will be insufficient. And institutions and, and people's um, ideas and and concepts and their worldview will be overrun by the spirit of the age because there is only one sufficient rock. There is only one firm place to stand. And it's not on the banana peel of, you know, cultural relevance. It's on the scriptures ardently defended, consistently affirmed, and only more vigorously asserted when they are opposed by the enemies at the gate. The last thing we need to do as the church of Jesus Christ is minimize the power of God's Word when there are enemies at the gate. We may worry that we won't curry favor and that we'll become even more marginalized or disregarded, but what did Jesus Himself say? Count it a blessing when you're hated by all men, for my name's sake. Saint in this room, confessing Christian, if you are hated for the name of Jesus, then this is a blessing. Do not back down. So this is the call. Now the sum of the law, Paul says, the substance, the spirit of it, the shorthand, if you will, you could cross-reference Romans thirteen eight through ten, is fulfilled in loving your neighbor as yourself. This is an interesting summary. Turn to Leviticus nineteen eighteen. There's other times when summaries of the law are given all through the course of Scripture, and some of them seem to, and some of them have differences among, uh, uh, between them. So it's important to interpret them in context. I think it's helpful to refer right back to the passage that Paul no doubt has in mind as he gives his summary of the law. This is Leviticus nineteen, eighteen, In the Torah, if you will. He's, uh, and uh, here we have Moses recording, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The sum of the law is two things according to Leviticus 19, 19, 18 used as a symbolic point of a summary, if you will. It is the fact that God is God and He has commanded how we ought to live. God is God and He directs us how we ought to live. So in this sense, the Fact that the or the first table of the law that is, uh, commandments one through four, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. All right, that's a, another summary statement. Or you, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make unto me any graven images. Uh, don't take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That is presu- presumed in Leviticus nineteen nineteen eighteen. I am God. In other words, remember the first table. I have the authority. I command your worship, your duty, and your obedience now act accordingly. So in this sense, we can see how the whole law is fulfilled in one word. That term word doesn't mean, you know, a a single unit of speech. It means one precept, one concept, one directive. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, Paul says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we see in this section, as Paul expounds the spirit of the law, he's addressing perennial, perennial errors. He's referring to a sum of the law, which presumes the whole. And thirdly, he is using the law according to how it is designed. And this is a point of systematic theology I like to reinforce from time to time. There are three purposes of the law. Number one is to show us our sin. These are summaries of biblical teaching. Good hermeneutics, I submit to you, and a study of the use of the law in Scripture, will reveal these three categories. First use of the law, if you will to reveal to us our sin. That is sometimes called the pedagogical use, teaching as to children. Second use of the law is the civil use. That's the guardrails in society to keep a certain semblance of order. uh, society uh, rises or falls. It sustains or collapses on the basis of God's law providing guardrails for its second use. Then there's the third use, and that's the one in view here. And this is often referred to as the didactic use. Again, reference to teaching, but now teaching as to the believer. And the teaching is this, God commands I, that you act in a certain way to bring glory and honor to Him. It answers the question, the third use of the law answers that question that Schaefer asked, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? Well, Paul says, this is how you shall live. It's all fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on to expand this. "...by the fruit of the Spirit, this is how you shall live, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law." Paul reveals the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer by emphasizing the Spirit of the law. Secondly, there's this conflict, antithesis, if you will, between Spirit and flesh. Note verse 16, "...but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh." Two ideas in conflict there, walking in the Spirit, the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Again, Spirit on one side, desires of the flesh on the other. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. He emphasizes it a second time for effect, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. There is a deep conflict. There is an antithesis. There is a war in the soul of man, as it were. There is conflict that will endure until glory, where two aspects of our being will fight with one another. There is this tendency and the lingering effects of our sin for us to drift towards licentiousness or legalism. But on the other hand, there is this second law warring in our members, if you will. It's the Spirit Himself the indwelling spirit, who reveals to us the sinfulness of the waywardness of sin and then exhorts us to walk in a manner, as Paul has said to the Ephesians, worthy of our call. So Paul is saying to the Galatian church, there's a war on. There's a war on for the preservation and the effect of the gospel to take root and foothold in your individual souls and for the testimony among you collectively to be sound and enduring. And don't underestimate this conflict. And don't go awol in the midst of the battle. He defines the flesh. What is the flesh? Or let's define the flesh. Paul uses this term to refer to, if you will, our natural sinful inclinations and preferences. Again, he gives these by way of numerous example in verse 19 and following as the works of the flesh. This is the flesh defined. It is not our bodies per se. It's not the fact that we have a physical existence. That's not what he means by flesh exactly. No, he means that that which attends our way by virtue of corruption, original sin inherited through Adam. Commentator McLaren says it this way, flesh meaning the whole human nature considered as apart from God and kindred with earth and earthly things. Again, the whole human nature considered as apart from God and kindred with earth and earthly things. This is the flesh defined, according to Paul, that which accords with our old nature. But now, the antithesis, the Spirit. Is this our Spirit that's in view here? No, primarily, you can see it's capitalized in your translation, I trust. It is the Holy Spirit. But I say, walk by the idea here is Holy Spirit. That is, God The Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, that is to say, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is alive and well and active in the life of every true believer. Paul is emphasizing this role of the Spirit. And as he does, we're reminded of the things that the Spirit is commissioned to do. What does the Spirit do? What does He accomplish? What role does He serve for us? Well, He reveals to us the truth of God's Word. He causes us to resonate with its precepts. He changes our hearts to appreciate and to love that which God says is just true of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy, and so forth, other categories extolling the splendor, the beauty of holiness that Paul uses to describe that which accords with the Spirit. It's a new set of desires, preferences, and affections. It's this new set that Paul refers to when he says uh, that the things of the flesh try to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Wants given by the Holy Spirit are desires that accord with who you are as a Christian, as a believer. You are a new creation in Christ, and as you are a new creation, there is a new influence in your life. This influence is the Holy Spirit, reveals to you the word of truth, causes you to love and grow in its precepts, who convicts you of sin, who teaches you the scriptures by way of His ordained means. Yes, even today, as we are hearing the preaching of His word, He comforts you along the way. He's your advocate and so forth, a paraclete is the term in the Greek. All of these things are identified with the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit on the one side as contrasted with the flesh on the other, and the war is on. And Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit is a sufficient force to stand against the works of the flesh. More than this, he says, that if you walk according to the Spirit, you will experience true liberty. This goes to the theme of Galatians, verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit you are not under the law. What does this mean? Well, when you are under the law, you can be under the law in several senses. And the sense that uh, Paul is in context here, referring to in context here is under the law as a declaration of condemnation over you, or under the law as a strict taskmaster to keep you in line, because if you didn't have the fearful presence of this sovereign agent over you, you would certainly be out of line. In other words, you're not governed by your heart, but you're governed by the threat of force. Now, when you begin to be governed by the Holy Spirit, you are no longer under a governor that is a threat of force like the civic use of the law, and you are no longer under the law as a declaration of condemnation against you. Because you constantly fall short, you deserve hell. That is the message of the law. But if you are changed, If you are born again, if you trust the broken body, pictured here at the Lord's table, and the shed blood of Jesus Christ to absorb the wrath of God on your behalf, then you are free. You are free from the law as a declaration of condemnation against you, and you're free from the law as a a forceful taskmaster to keep you from doing what you otherwise only want to do. In this sense, we see a parallel with another verse in verse 23. After the list of the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, against such things there is no law. In other words, if you practice regularly or grow in these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you do not need a harsh taskmaster of a law to govern you. Why? Because you are self-governed. You are exercising self-control. Now, the implications of this truth Extend not only to the Christian individual, not only to the church, but indeed to all society. We value in American culture the fact that we are a free country, a free nation. We love freedom of spree- speech. But if we look at the concepts of freedom articulated in Scripture, we find this that the freedom of God is not, that the freedom and liberty of the Christian to act in a way that God is designed us to act as not an unbounded liberty. I often use this illustration. I have a question for you kids in the room. Think of a train. Uh, what does a train run on? Does anyone know? Uh, tracks, that's exactly right. A train runs on tracks. Now, has anyone ever seen a train just take off through the swamp with no tracks and go wherever it wants to go? Has anyone seen that? What do you guys think would happen if the train driver said, you know what? I'm not going to go on the tracks today. I'm just going to head off through the woods, do a little off-roading in my locomotive. What do you guys think would happen? How far would he get? Wouldn't even move. Wouldn't get anywhere. He would crash. It It wouldn't be successful at all. So last question, kids. Where is a train freer? On the tracks or just going through the woods? That's right. Because when a train is on its tracks, it is operating according to how it's designed. So you see by this analogy, what is the tracks and what is the train, do you not? The tracks is God's prescribed rules for us, His law, the whole law fulfilled in one word in Paul's language here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now we often want to just take our train, if you will, and just do some off-roading through the swamp of immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, strife, jealousy, and so forth. But how far will we get? We will crash. So back to our societal implications. Any view of liberty in a nation, any stable view or any sustainable idea of a freedom in society must be bounded. If there is no train tracks of self-government, if there is no train tracks of self-control, namely the fruit of the Spirit, there is no real liberty. You know, incorporate all these things into your constitution. Freedom to do all of this junk, immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, sorcery, so on and so forth, and see how long you last. It is an anti-civilizational vision. Civilization rests on obedience to God's law. Self-government and the power of the state are inversely proportional, is another way you could say it, just to get a little uh, poli-sci on you, political science on you. If you want to have a small government so that there's maximal freedom, you must have self-government on the individual level. I am sorry, there is no exceptions, no exceptions. So anyways... There's a lot of extents to this application. You can even take it, you know, these days we celebrate the founding of our country. Some of these ideas are foundational to our founding, but they certainly need to be reasserted, and they need to be reasserted according to their ultimate authority, not the Constitution, not the best ideas of the most popular pundits, not the constitutional scholars, not the legal system, not the Supreme Court, but the Word of God. So, Paul reveals the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer by expounding the spirit of the law. The antithesis between the spirit and the flesh. Thirdly, he expounds the works of the flesh. We've mentioned them a number of times already. But let me suggest to you there, we could put them in perhaps three categories and Paul also outlines the consequences. First category, indulgence. This is kind of one of those vice lists that they're sometimes called. Notice the similarity of these first few elements of the flesh or works of the flesh that Paul lists. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, or let's pause at those first three, I'm sorry, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. This is a common category in the vice list of Paul. At the end of 2 Corinthians, there's another one that I recall, and there's two main categories in that vice list as well. Sins of self-indulgence, you could say, self-centered sins, and then sins of schism, dissension, strife. So there's sins of you know just satisfying my fleshly urges, and then there's sins of sowing discord between relationships. There's perhaps a third category in this list which, in, which uh, involves paganism. Uh, verse 20, he lists idolatry and sorcery. And then here's that second category of schisms I mentioned before. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Then he goes back to a couple self-indulgent type of sins, drunkenness and orgies. This is a long list to remember, but think of selfishness and think of animosity or conflict in relationships, and those are two overriding themes that we often see, in addition this kind of a fascination with paganism. Now, do these have applications to the present? You bet they do. Oh, do we see these categories as uh, threatening the church of our day? Yes. Think of the applications. We just got done, as a culture, quote-unquote celebrating, quote-unquote Pride Month. Now, I was looking for an app on my phone the other day during, quote, Pride Month, and the first 60 recommended apps all were uh, attended with this icon of a rainbow. We've covered the rainbow as the sign of what covenant, kids? The rainbow is a sign of what covenant? Yes, that's correct. The sign of the Noahic Covenant that God will not flood the whole earth. But in our society, uh, we have decided that it will become a civic virtue to have pride and to endorse the rights and the, uh, the arbitrary self-sexual identity of numerous groups and to attach to that flagrant immorality, codified in culture, the sign of the rainbow. Do you guys think God is happy about this or angry? Angry, think about that, sorry kids, little tricky question there. But when you take a sign that God says means I will never flood the earth again and you use that as a sign of your own sin, God is angry at such a thing. We have taken the rainbow, God's sign of his right to judge and his grace in withholding judgment and we've attached it to things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, drunkenness and orgies and the like. These are the works of the flesh. This whole category uh, is alive and well, is it not? And we see it in our day. And so we must stand strong. Otherwise, we will capitulate, we will compromise, we will seek common ground, we will make room in our thinking to uh, tolerate this kind of thing. Let us not do so, saints. Second category of this pagan worship that we referenced, or that we mentioned in reference to idolatry and sorcery, that's alive and well today, too. In the modern age, we have rejected the idea of the, the reality of the spiritual, only, and you can only do that for so long on pure secularism and naturalism, the spiritual realities of life are undeniable. So as this truth that has been suppressed in unrighteousness begins to resurface in a wicked culture, you see people attracted to all kinds of spiritual pursuits, hallucinogenics, are getting a revival. People are taking drugs to experience abstractions in the, quote, spiritual realm, and you can believe they are. And you can also know that all of them are absolutely dangerous, if not almost always demonic, and will lead to the works of the flesh becoming more and more evident because it is anti-God's prescribed means of connecting with spiritual realities. What is God's prescribed means? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit not some other source of spirituality. Thus through mysticism, hallucinogens, escape culture, uh, yoga culture, mindfulness, and other pagan fascinations, we see these works of the flesh alive and well in our day today. And of course there's no shortage of sins of schism either. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. People talk a lot about outrage culture. People talk about the oppression Olympics, someone cynically said, and uh, these political ideas, social justice warriors, factions, uh, socialism, um, politics of envy, covetousness, redistribution of wealth, calling uh, uh, the uh, disparity in means uh, something akin to an injustice that must be addressed by giving the government license to steal and redistribute as it ought. And then even within the church, fomenting certain rivalries and dissensions between groups. No, we should stand against all of this. This is enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, sins of schism. When you and I cross the threshold into the house of the Lord, it's not the building that is important, but in fact, the commonality of who we worship. We worship Jesus Christ, we have Him in common. Do you not think that the worship of Jesus Christ is a powerful enough bond to unify every one-time separated people group or culture on this earth, you better believe. You know, when Jesus Christ was born, there were shepherds, the lowliest of the low, that came and worshipped Him, but He was also worshipped by kings. The same presence, the same occasion, the same attractive appeal of the Lord and Savior, incarnate, born, drew kings and paupers alike. And now Paul says it's going further still to bring in Jew and Gentile. And he has announced this. And this is the source of, of our true meaning as a people is the unity that we share in the Spirit, in the bond of peace, a more powerful bond than anything else. And it breaks down the middle wall of any other kind of separation, and we ought to suffer uh, no attempt to destroy this powerful bond of unity. These are the works of the flesh. Finally this morning, Paul reveals the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer, not only by emphasizing the Spirit of the law, the antithesis between flesh and Spirit, expounding the works of the flesh, but he closes by expounding the fruits of the Spirit in this section. And here we read in verse 22 and following, but the fruit of the Spirit is, number one, what is it, saints? Love. Number two. Number three. Number four. Number five. Number five. Number six. Number seven. Number eight. Number nine. All right, a lot of ESVs in the room today. <laughs> Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Notice that Paul describes these as fruits, he has described the th- things associated with the flesh as works. This is no accident. The problem was people were thinking that by their works, they could accomplish in part their salvation. But instead of saying, these are the works of the Spirit or works that you do to achieve the Spirit, Paul says, no, these are fruits. These are things that are evident that spring forth as the effect of a sovereign work of a holy God changing your heart and seeking Seeking you out, drawing you irresistibly to confession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, and then finding a suitable home by the power of His blood to cleanse you as a temple for His Holy Spirit. And when this change happens, there begins to be effects. These effects include changes along these lines the fruit of the Spirit. The root of the gospel is springing forth into the uh, uh, not the works of the flesh but indeed the fruit of the Spirit, and so we see them here. This analogy draws out the distinction between salvation based on works, which is heresy, or our works, and salvation based upon a sovereign work of the Lord our God. It bears fruit, fruit of the Spirit, as we see here in these amazing categories. Now, as you read these, you might mistakenly think that this describes a person who is passive, and kind of a wallflower. But no, remember what Paul has said? There's a sharp antithesis, a war, if you will. There's contention between the, a walk of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh. These fruits of the Spirit are conquering characteristics. These are warfare tools, if you will. Paul has a similar list in Ephesians 6. And we call this the armor of God. We have the helmet of salvation, Right? The sword of the Spirit, the belt of truth, the shield of faith, feet shod with the gospel of peace, and so on. These are things that equip us to stand against the works of the flesh. These are things that equip us to stand against the works of the flesh evident in our culture. And so we recognize these as conquering characteristics. Let me close with the question I opened with this morning. What difference does Pentecost make? Turn to John chapter 16. As we approach the communion table, I want to remind you of the sequence of events as Jesus is fulfilling His ministry on earth. Here's one of them, and this by way of prophecy of an event that was to come, John 16:7. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. Who is the helper? Kids in the room, do you know who the helper is? Jesus. A Good guess. There's three options. God the Son, God the Father, or God the Holy Spirit. Which one do you think is the helper? The Spirit. That's correct. God the Holy Spirit. He says, it is to your advantage that the helper will come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin. Because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus is helping his disciples understand the difference that the Holy Spirit will make. What difference will it make when he leaves but sends the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, to attend the way of his people well, he will come, it will be in an even better situation than if Christ had stayed. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin. He will preserve his people, and his people will bring forth his word as a testimony of judgment to those who do not believe, but as a testimony of salvation to those who place faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. Secondly, in chapter 17, the sequence of events, we see his high priestly prayer. In the book of John, his betrayal and, re- and arrest are recorded in chapter 18. In chapter 19, he's crucified. Chapter 20, he's resurrected. You turn over a page to the book of Acts, and he is ascended in chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost comes. And at this moment, there is a sound of a rushing mighty wind, just like the Ruach in Hebrew that we've studied, that was present when the world was created that was present when the flood waters receded that was present when the sea the dead sea or the red sea was split was parted so that God's people could go into the promised land Now this Ruach wind, this evidence of the Holy Spirit in this form comes upon God's people and this is signaled, this is set apart, signified by tongues of fire appearing on their heads, them speaking with other tongues and going forth in this apostolic wave that is still washing over the earth today of the testimony and proclamation of God's truth, the gospel. We stand now in the heritage of that first wave that went forth imbued by this power of the Holy Spirit. This is the difference that Pentecost made conviction of sin, an understanding of the gospel, a boldness to proclaim it, a perseverance of the saints, an encouragement to stand in a day when the church is threatened by the works of the flesh. So remember this sequence of events, saints, at the communion table this morning. If Jesus Christ had not sent the Holy Spirit, furthermore, if He had not died, shed His blood, and broke His body for us, if He had not ascended before the Father to receive the inheritance prophesied, indeed all the nations of the earth, if He did not proceed to rule in His session over everything, yes, even today, if He had not sent His Holy Spirit, you and I would be powerless against the works of the flesh. But because He has, we can stand strong, even in a day when our faith is threatened, and we can do so with victory, recognizing that through Christ, by the power of His Spirit, We declare war successfully against the power of the enemy in our life. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank You for the promises of Your Holy Scripture. We thank You that they are secured for us in Christ. We thank You that they are represented for us, Lord Jesus, and even our expanded sensory experience at the Lord's table. We thank You for these blessings, these benefits, these means of realizing the importance of Your work on Calvary. As we approach the table today, believers in this room, I pray that we would recognize, Lord, the significance of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the great cost for this reality for us as believers, the fact that Jesus came and was crucified for us, His people, to atone for our sins. And may these things encourage and equip us to stand in the faithfulness and the tradition of Paul and those who followed in His stead uncompromisingly declaring that Jesus Christ, my grace through faith in his work alone, is the means whereby we are saved. In his name we pray. Amen.